Let's pray, and then we'll spend a little bit of time in the, in the text this morning. So let's, let's go ahead and let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so very much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins. We thank you for all the work that you do in our lives and in our hearts, bringing about this new birth, this redemption that we have in Christ, that you, by your sovereign hand, has lifted us out of the dominion of darkness and has transferred us into the image or into the kingdom of your beloved son and uh, we just ask father that as we think about the text this morning that we would exalt your son jesus and that we would exalt you we thank you so much for sending him and so very thankful for each person who's here and very thankful for the work that you're doing in their hearts transforming them and making them more like your son Jesus. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So uh, last year Chapman University did a poll on the things that scare Americans the most. Uh, I'd like to share the top 10 list with you. Like I said my job this morning is apparently to get everybody to leave the church and get us all scared and running away and uh, number 10, scariest thing for Americans is biological warfare. That's pretty serious, right? How about this one? Pollution. People are scared of pollution. Or what about this? Economic collapse. That's something, that, I mean, that's legitimate, right? I mean, that would be scary. Uh, seven, not having enough money for future. Number six, polluted drinking water. Uh, Number five, that the U.S. goes to war. Number four, people I love dying. Number three, you ready? Number three, Russians using nuclear weapons. Number two, people that I love becoming ill. And number one, the number one fear for Americans. You ready? I'm sure you all have in your mind, think about what you think number one is. Okay, corrupt government officials. Did anybody think that? I see a hand. No, I'm joking. Nobody thought that. Of course, as I look at that list, there's some things on that list that I go, yeah, I'm concerned about that. That's a concerning thing if that happens. But what's interesting is, is that none of the things I'm scared of is on that list. Uh, You know, like heights. People are more scared of the government than they are heights. Uh, I'm scared of heights. Now, a government on a cliff holding me over a cliff, I might be scared of that. But uh, I'm scared of heights. I want you for a moment, just, just for a moment, to, to, to think of your deepest, darkest fears. I know this is getting really dark really quick. But I just want you to think about your, the, the deepest fear you have. And try to, try to capture that emotion. Try to capture that emotion of fear, of concern. That describes the audience that Peter is talking to in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. So go with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 37. That, that fear, that, that sense of uh-oh, that sense of th- things are not right. Things are, things are not the way, they're not the way they're supposed to. So, so just notice here in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, 
So remember last week when we talked about the this, what was this thing that he talked about? Remember, Peter was answering the question of what was happening with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he talked about uh, this promise as it's coming from God's word, right? He declared these, these incredible promises, and this was part of, uh, of, what, of what God's doing. And, and then he starts talking about Christ, and he starts to give the evidence of who Christ is, saying that this one was, was, was sent by God and was attested by all these miracles and signs. And according to God's definite plan, you people nailed him to a cross, Right? Then he then went through and described furthermore uh, how Jesus was the one whom the Old Testament talked about, right? So he goes through all these Old Testament prophecies and gives this incredibly detailed portrait of the Messiah, right? And so Peter goes through this and describes the Messiah. So it's after they heard this message, right? They heard this message from God's chosen witnesses. Remember, these witnesses were empowered by the Holy Spirit. These witnesses gave a, a, a very effective and a, a, a very uh, clear presentation of the gospel message, right? So it's because of this. It's because of this message that Peter said, right? It says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see that phrase, cut to the heart? Interesting phrase, cut to the heart. Literally means it feels like somebody's cutting you in half. It's like somebody taking a, 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 a sword or a knife or something sharp and hitting you right, right in the chest. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of that sharp pain of distress when you hear something. Uh, uh, I know I get those sharp pains of fear whenever I'm up in a high place, Right? Because I firmly believe Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always. So anytime I get up high, I realize Jesus isn't. No, I'm joking. No, I'm just scared of falling. I, I really am. And, and every time I look over the edge of something uh, and there's nothing to grab onto, there's these sharp pain. There's these sharp things that happen. And, and all of a sudden, I, I start shaking and sweaty, right? Th- that's the feeling I get. And that's the feeling that's described here. But this is different. This, is, this isn't trivial, like looking over a cliff. This is a, this is a serious, serious cutting. We would call this the conviction, conviction of the Holy Spirit. The question is, why were these people cut to the heart? Well, think about it. You would, too, if you, if you just witnessed this incredible thing that's never happened before. People start speaking in different languages. You're listening to this. They're they're sharing God's word. The Holy Spirit is working on their hearts, right? That's how conviction happens, right? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word. And then the message, imagine this, realizing this, the Messiah was here and you missed him. That would be incredibly, incredibly scary. Number two, not only did you miss him, you killed him. Uh Uh-oh. We killed the Messiah. And then number three, realizing uh, you can't bring him back. He's already risen from the dead, and he's not here. And then you think about then that passage that he quotes from Joel, and it's talking about these wonders in the sky and vapor and fire and smoke and the, the blood and the moon and the sun turning into blood and darkening out. And you're thinking, We missed the Messiah, we rejected the Messiah, we killed the Messiah, and the passage talks about this great, terrible wrath that's coming? Uh Uh-oh. 
uh, we messed up. We messed up big. You would have the same thought if you were there and the Holy Spirit was working on your heart. You, there, there would be this, over-sense, this sense of overwhelming concern and conviction. That This is the most obvious thing that would happen, right? I know that in each of our lives, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I know you've had this feeling of, I've done something seriously wrong. I, I have done something seriously wrong against a holy God. And there is nothing I can do to repair that. There's that overwhelming sense of condemnation, that overwhelming sense of, uh-oh. So we understand this. I, I, I understand exactly that feeling of being cut to the heart. And so notice what they do. So it says, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So... During this resurrection time, uh, we're taking a little bit of a break from our study in the book of Proverbs, and we're talking about the resurrection, but this year we're talking about the resurrection a little bit different. We're talking about how do we talk about the resurrection to those who don't know Jesus, how we can be effective witnesses in our community, this town, right? This town, Astoria, Warrington, Gearhart, right? Napa, all the places where we live, right? How how can we be... uh, how can we be witnesses in our own town? And how do we talk about the resurrection? And so we've talked about how in order for us to be effective witnesses in our community, we have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? This is important for us, that we need to be walking worthy of the manner with which he called us. Last week we talked about the, the message and the content of the message that we should be bringing, right? And how... How it's about the word, bringing out the word. It's about talking about Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, right? Challenging people to call upon the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. And remember last week we said, that's the message. It's not hard. It's not complicated. You don't need to learn another language. You don't need to learn Latin or Greek to describe this. It's Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again. And you, you can have the same hope I have that's found in Jesus. By placing your faith in him. I want you to notice one thing, by the way, in Peter's sermon. Though he does point out, you killed Jesus. And though he does mention this passage in Joel. Peter really didn't harp on their sins. Right? I mean, he didn't really go off on their sins. Now, granted, this is a summation of Peter's argument. Maybe he did. But... I think God's pretty good at summarizing arguments and helping the author of the New Testament write exactly what was said and the things that need to be said. I point that out to say, there's not a lot of things that we need to say to convict people of sin. Anytime you just talk about a holy God, conviction's going to come. I don't have to sit here and enumerate every single sin of our community in order for there to be conviction of sin. All I have to do is show them a holy God, show them the scriptures, that conviction will come by itself. And in one sense, notice that it's allowing the Holy Spirit to convict these people. I imagine as these men are coming up to the apostles, all of them have different thoughts. I know what it's like to preach a sermon and then then hear people as they talk about my sermon and they talk about points 
that I mentioned in my sermon that I didn't even think I mentioned. And they said, oh, yeah, no, I was thinking about this while you were talking. I didn't say that. But that's how the Lord works. And so I understand these people are coming, right? And notice, I want us to notice the effective witness that Peter has, the effective witness that Peter and the apostles have. And I just want to point out three things this morning in this text. I want to point out, first of all, I want you to see Peter and the apostles' concern for the unsaved. They are concerned. They are very concerned, right? We kind of see that in verse 37, and then we kind of see that in, in, in the way that they respond. And we're going to kind of see that. That's kind of a rolling point throughout the whole thing. Also notice, and primarily in, the, in, in verses 38 through 40, how they're calling people to rely upon God's salvation that's offered. There, there is no do this, do this, do this. It, it is, this is the salvation that's offered. You need to respond appropriately to this. And then lastly, in verse 41, there's this thing that happens as I read through the text that it just causes me to consider God's saving grace and, and to sit back and go, he did that. He was the one that added people to the church. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't the preaching of Peter. It wasn't his ability to turn a phrase. It wasn't his ability to quote the right passage at the right time. This passage isn't like a silver bullet type of thing. That if all we have to do is just read it through the, through the streets of Astoria, through loudspeakers, and people will go, well, now I need Jesus. No, no, we, we see God's work on display and how God adds people to the church. And this incredible marveling at the work of God and what God does. So, let's look at these. So, just notice in in, in verse 37, these people, they're concerned, they're convicted of sin. Where do they go? They go to Peter. And notice what Peter says. It says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Later on, it's going to say, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Peter Peter was there. He was was there walking with them. He, He was there for a long time. It wasn't, well, just buy the manuscript of my sermon. And you'll be good. It wasn't, you should have just paid attention. How dare you didn't pay attention to me? There was this deep concern for the souls of the people that were there. Just as a passing comment, I know that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the souls of those who don't know Jesus. I, I I believe that. I've met believers all around the world, and every single one has shared that concern. I'm concerned for my neighbors. I'm concerned for my family. I'm concerned that they don't know Jesus. I I believe that to be true. Sometimes, when we're not walking by the power of the Spirit, we are not as compassionate and as empathetic as we should be towards the unsaved. And what ends up happening is we become so concerned about ourselves, about our own rights, uh, about things that are happening to me, that I, that I forget that there are people around me who are still children of wrath, under the wrath of God, in still need of forgiveness, still need of Jesus. And, and it's amazing to me how many people around us don't know some of the simple messages of Jesus. We might assume that they do. And so I don't want to question that we don't have concern. Sometimes, though, what what I do think is that I have such a concern for myself and what's going on for me 
that I'm not empathetic towards those who don't know Jesus. And, and, and I'm so concerned and caught up with, I got this, 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 that, that I don't see people as I should see people. These are people that are created in the image of God for whom Jesus died on the cross and is offering salvation. People for whom Jesus and God love. their creation of Jesus. And, and sometimes I, I, I look at them as if they're some sort of enemy. They're some sort of other. And, and that, and that they're, 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 it gets this spiritual pride that I, I'm a preacher, so therefore I know. And, and there's sometimes where I, I, I value my will and my intellect and, and, and somehow I foolishly think that maybe it was because I just had a stronger will than the guy next to me. That's why I'm a believer and they're not. And they're kind of hopeless, with, with, without any hope. Why, why would I share the gospel with my neighbor? You know what he does every night? Those types of things. I, I think one of the things that we can learn from the example of Peter to be an effective witness is to have a concern for our neighbors that live around us and realize they don't know Jesus. That's sad. That's really sad. And some of them don't even know how sad their state is. I I just hope that the Lord would would help us and develop in us a view of, of people around us as he sees them, as he sees them as lost, and, and that my heart goes out to them, that they need Jesus. That's what they need. There's probably a lot of other things that they need, but they definitely need Jesus. So notice what Peter says here in this next verse, in verse 38. Uh, verse 38, notice what Peter says as they say, What do we do, brothers? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God has called, calls to himself. This is an interesting text, Acts 2.38. When I was in Bible college at the time, uh, we spent a lot of time discussing this text because at the time we were... There's a lot of popular Christians talking about the nature of repentance. And so we as young Bible college students would stay up late drinking coffee, talking what is the true nature of repentance. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time in my ministry trying to understand this charge, specifically here in Acts 2, uh, and, and what, what Peter says when he says repent. If I may just say this one other thing before I start getting into the definition of repentance. I feel that there are some people who have a really bad definition of repentance. And, and, and this is what I think they do. I think they're well-intentioned. I don't think they're enemies of the cross. I don't think that they're non-believers. Let me just start off that. But I do think that what they do is they take all eight words that we, that are in the original language that we use to refer to as repentance, they jumble them all together and make one big grand definition of repentance. And then every time they read the word repentance, they try to stuff that definition into every text. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes it doesn't work because the authors use specific words. This is, this is one of these fallacies that we can do in our Bible studies. We have this common definition of a word, and then we see it, 
and without investigating what the word is behind the word repentance, we just automatically just fill in a whole bunch of stuff, right? I've met some people, they've done the complete opposite. They, they struggle with the idea of repentance and how it relates to faith. And so they just simply say repentance is just faith. That's all it is, a call to faith. There's nothing unique about the word repent. And so every time they see the word repent, they go, that's not what it means. It means believe. Now, now I'm going to be honest. No, repentance and belief, as we will see, though they are tied together, they are two different acts in the same act. Uh, we'll explain this here in a second. But, but do not think that there's just one act and repentance actually has absolutely no, no meaning. So the question then is, what does this word repent mean? This word repent here is really the word which means change your mind. This is one of the words of repentance. There's another one that means feel sorry for, right? There's another word that means turn around, do this, do that. This word here means change your mind. Now, in the modern world, we, we, might be, uh, we might be tempted to think of this changing of the mind, like me this morning picking out my tie, going, uh, do I do the black one or do I do the gray one? The gray one. No, I changed my mind, the black one. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a superficial changing of mind. When we talk about the changing of mind here, uh, and, and I think when, when we consider what Peter's saying, I think what, what Peter's saying is you need to rethink everything. There needs to be a paradigm shift. There, there needs to be a paradigm shift. I don't think Peter's saying stop sinning, which I've heard somebody say that's what the word repentance means, just stop sinning. That's impossible to ask, and that's not salvation. I, I think what he's saying is, Whatever you're thinking about Jesus, thinking about yourself, thinking about the means of salvation, whatever you think about how you're right with God, whatever you think about all of that before you heard this message of Jesus and you had this worldview of how I fit into this world and how I'm saved and how I'm right and all of that, change it because it's wrong. It's wrong. Here's the new one. It's Jesus. It automatically implies, by the way, to, to change one's mind, it automatically implies this is wrong and Jesus is the one that is right. So it automatically implies faith. So there needs to be this act of what I thought before is wrong and now Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, is right. And this is what I'm trusting alone. So when Peter says you all must repent. It is you all must change the way you're thinking about what you thought about the Messiah, what you thought about yourself, and now trust in Jesus alone. That's what I think the call is. I think this is incredibly clear. By the way, it's important for us just to remember, if you're taking notes, this is an important thing, because I'm going I'm to... To me, this is a really important part of the Greek grammar. Greek grammar is important in this verse because of the next phrase that's said. But when Peter says this, this is a plural command, which means he says, all of you must repent. 
in my mind, when I see this, according to the Greek grammar, this is the primary command of the text. You all must repent. Everything else is kind of secondary to this, right? Because, because it's the plural command. All of you must repent. All of you must change the way you're thinking. There's numerous passages we could go to to look at this idea of repentance and faith. Uh, you know, one that I, I, I often think that's very helpful to me is, is found in Acts chapter 26 where, where, where Paul uses those together. Uh, another one that's kind of interesting to me is Paul when he uses the word repent in Acts 17. To me, another one that's kind of interesting and important is this one that's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Go with me there quickly. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. So, So this is Paul talking to the elders of Ephesus, and he says, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he puts them together. There's, there's, this, there's this idea of the way that I'm thinking about myself, thinking about God, thinking about truth, right? So, so I'm turning to God that way, and then notice that faith is centered in the person and work of Christ. Here Paul has to clarify. The reason he has to clarify is because it's possible for somebody to say, well, I repent and I believe in God. That's not the gospel, by the way, friends. No one is going to heaven because they believe in the existence of God. People are right with God on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. And you are given, imputed his righteousness when you place your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So be very careful. I know there's a lot of Hollywood movie stars that when they get a little golden statue that says you did a good job, they say, I'd like to thank my Lord, my Lord and Savior God, or I believe in God, and all we Christians go crazy cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs going, well, they obviously got to be a believer because they thank God. Hey, I'm thankful for any time somebody gives credit to God. I, I want God to be honored and glorified in every way, and I'll take whatever I can get. But let's not be so foolish as to assume that if they mention God in a acceptance speech, that that automatically means that they're believers. No, it's belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Part of that belief, by the way, even when you say to somebody, you must believe in Jesus, it automatically assumes that act of repentance, of declaring all that, you've, all that you thought before is wrong. Okay, so you get the point, right? So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Here then comes then the, the, a very difficult part in the text for, for many. Not because I think Peter is confused, but I think because of thousands of years of church history and the way that people describe this text, I think it has become confused. So, so I don't think that this passage is necessarily confusing. I, I think it's just been really poorly explained. So, so notice what, what Peter says. He then says, and be baptized, each of you. Now, now remember when I said in repentance was, was a plural command. Every single one of you be, be, repent. It's kind of interesting that the word for baptism, you, all, you must be baptized, is in the singular. So it, it's, it's translated this way. All of you must repent. The ones that repent must be baptized. So the command's not to be baptized. 
The, the, the command of baptism is actually given to those who repent. That's important to remember, okay? Baptism is this act by which somebody is publicly declaring that they are now followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is this act, this incredible act that symbolizes this new life that I have in Christ. It, Baptism is this incredible act of identifying myself with Jesus and the people who claim Jesus as their Savior. That's what baptism is. That's what it does. And so it's this public proclamation to everyone. And it's something where I'm saying, I'm identifying with Christ. It's part of the discipleship process, right, of me being a follower of Jesus. And so Peter here, this is the right command. It's the right command. Repent, believe in Jesus, forsake all of the stuff that you used to believe, and now identify with Jesus the Messiah. It's the right thing to say. It's the right thing to do. Now, we live in a modern world where there's 2,000 years of history from this event to now. And you would say, very rarely do I hear people now say, believe and be baptized immediately. Why, Why is that? Well, there's lots of good reasons for that. Number one, we've got to remember this is a unique period of time in history. So that's one. Number two, there's nothing in the Bible that commands when someone's to be baptized after faith. Just that it has to be after faith, and it's implied that it should be public. And throughout church history, there have been several people who have claimed to, be, to know Jesus identify with the body through baptism, and then it's come to find out that they were heretics. And so because of the growth of heresy, and because we want to protect the testimony of the church, we as modern church leaders give a little bit of time. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with what Peter does here. But there was a sense where there was... Uh, baptism right right then and and so then notice as peter bears down he says each of you be baptized and then and then he even adds every one of you then notice in the name of jesus christ so so, so the whole point the whole point here is 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 each individual one of that repents is to be baptized and notice that it's to be identified with jesus christ nowhere in the new testament does it ever claim that someone goes to heaven because they are baptized? That is a step that is only necessary for believers as followers of Jesus Christ. This may be one of the few passages that people point to that say, well, it may lead us to think that you need to be baptized in order for forgiveness of sins. No. As we learned this morning, how are we forgiven of our sins? That's something only God can do in Christ. Baptism doesn't do that. It symbolizes that, but it doesn't do that. And you say, but Caleb, look at the text. It says, for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that word for is the Greek word ice. Ice is a tricky little preposition. It can mean multiple things. You know what it, you know what it does mean? It does mean on the basis of. So, so it's translated. This is how I translate it. All of you repent, each one of you who repents, then be baptized in the name of Jesus on the basis of 
the forgiveness of sins. Peter's not calling them to be baptized so that their sins are forgiven. He is saying be baptized because your sins are forgiven. It's recognizing who we are in Christ. It's recognizing this incredible position I have. And then notice he goes on using the same, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When do I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Not because of anything I do. That is a sovereign work of God that he gives to me. Right? That's a sovereign work of God. So I receive forgiveness of sins because of what Christ has done. I apprehend that by faith. Then there's also then this gift of the Holy Spirit that I receive based off of the person and work of Christ that's sent to me. And then notice what he says. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children. Oh, and this is a great verse for you for CEF. The promise is for the children as well. It's for the adults. It's for the children. Anyone who places their faith in Christ, this is the promise. Forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power that comes from that. And he says, for all who are far off, those, those, those who are far away, those Gentiles, this is for us Gentiles, for sinners, for, the, for those who are not walking with the Lord. This is who the gospel's for, for those who are not walking with the Lord. The gospel's for me as well as a believer because I can't think of anything else past the gospel. The, all those who are far off, and then notice this next phrase, Everyone whom the Lord God has called to himself. In in Peter's mind, the reason that these people are asking the question is because the Lord is working on their heart, causing them to be convicted of sin, causing them to ask the question, what do I do? And as the Lord's working on their heart and the charge, believe in Jesus, is given, repent, It's because of the work of the Spirit that's working in their heart that God's calling them to himself through the preaching of the Word. And as the preaching of the Word, that's what he's doing. He's calling people to himself. Anytime we see someone come to know the Lord, we have full front front seat display of God's work in action. This is God working on the hearts of people. So in Peter's mind, it's, it's, you're not repenting. You have a responsibility to repent, but you're not repenting because you're smart enough or you have a strong enough will. You do this because God is calling you. And so then notice what he says in verse 40. And he says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So obviously what we have here is a summation of the, of the statement, right? Peter said a lot of words constantly calling, constantly warning, constantly pleading with them. But, but notice how Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, surmises these extra words. Notice, save yourself from this crooked generation. Now, a lot of us, when I, when I read this in the English, you have the sense of Peter's offering a lifeboat, Right? Save yourself. Now's the time to save yourself. Here's the option. Save yourself. Do it. Get out. Come on. Save yourself. You're in the midst of a crooked generation. Save it. Save yourself. When you look at it in the Greek, it is far more impressive. I, I, the English here, I'm very disappointed in. You know, what it's, you know what it says? It's literally, 
you must allow yourself to be saved from this crooked generation. You must allow yourself to be saved. Now, that's a little bit of a different feel to it, isn't it? Because what's the basis then? It's someone else is doing the saving. And and what's, what's the process then of that saving? Is, okay, I'm accepting that offer. I'm accepting that offer of salvation. It's not that the human is working himself for salvation or he's doing anything to be saved. It's that he sees the salvation that's offered in the cross. And because of the work of God, he says, that's it. I can't save myself. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say. There's no ritual. There's no prayer. There's no amount of Bible reading. There's no amount of synagogue attendance. There's no amount of righteousness that I can do that will have me with the right relationship with God. It has to be the offer that God gives. And I'm allowing that offer. I'm apprehending that offer by faith. I'm allowing him to save me from this crooked generation, this evil generation. This evil generation specifically who killed the Messiah. But I think we could easily, theologically, safely say we also live in a crooked generation. And then notice, oh, this is brilliant. Verse 41. So those who received his words were baptized. Amen. Right? They, took, they, they, they heard the message. They received it. And then notice what it says. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Have you ever asked that? Added to what? The church. Who did the adding? We would assume they added themselves, right? Because they saved themselves. But you'd be wrong. Once again, Luke here is very precise in his language. This adding implies someone else added them to the roster. Who added them to the roster of the church? It was God himself. God added them. So when we sit back and look at this marvelous work of God, what are we considering? We're considering God's work in the life of people. So for us as effective witnesses in Astoria, Clatsop County, the towns that we live in, Warrington, Gerhart, Napa, we see that to be effective witness, I need to be concerned about those around me who don't know Jesus. Right? Peter was. That's the example. Jesus was concerned. I need to call people to rely on God's salvation, right? It's not my salvation. I'm not offering you salvation of how you can save yourself. This is what God has offered. This this is the offer, God, you have to take, and you have to be saved on God's means. I think this is clear. I think it's bold. And then one of the other things that I think we should do as an effective witness, this is what the Apostle Paul does. This is what I think all the apostles do, is they sit back and they consider and they marvel at God's work in salvation. And you go, well, why is, that, why is that such an important part of an effective witness? Simple. It doesn't rely on me whether this town is saved or not. This is God's work. This is what he does. He saves people. He may use us. Amen. I, he should pick better people. But we're it. Look around. We're it. For this town, this is what he's working with. Oh, it has to be his work. And this is what we should consider. This helps us become an effective witness. This way then we don't give in to gimmicks. We don't give in to uh, uh, silver bullet things. You know what I mean? I, 
I talk to so many people, and they're, they're looking for like a silver bullet solution. Just give me the right thing to say. Just, just something. And, and I can use that in every situation, this, this easy thing that, 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 that I can say in a complex situation, and everybody's saved. Give, give me that. Anyone who's ever shared the gospel with those who don't know, no, there's no such thing as a silver bullet solution. There can't be a silver bullet solution. This is the work of God. And all we're doing is just presenting the work of God, and God's the one that does the work. So I think for me, if, if, if I want to be an effective witness in this town, if you want to be an effective witness, I, I look at this text, I, I look at this concern, and what I start doing is I start doing this. Number one, I start praying. God, give me concern. Give, give me such a burden for those who don't know Jesus. Give me a burden for my neighbors who are unsaved. That, that I, I, can't, I, I can't sleep until I talk to them about Jesus. I, 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 can't, I can't function right. I, I, I can't sit down and watch a TV show. I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable because, because I know that they don't know Jesus. Give me that kind of burden. Give me that kind of, give me that kind of feeling. There's people around me that don't know Jesus, and, and that's not okay. Pray to God, God, give me boldness in the midst of the opportunities. Uh, I, I guarantee you, this past week, you were given several opportunities to share the gospel. You don't have to look very hard. You were given several opportunities. They were there. They were right there. Now, maybe you took them, maybe you didn't. I don't know. I'm going to leave that to you and the Lord to talk through. But I know you were. And I know for me, most of the time, it's not, the issue is not seeing the opportunity. It's having the boldness to do the right thing in the midst of that opportunity, right? That, that's, that's where I struggle, right? I'm like the lion in, the, in, in uh, the Wizard of Oz, right? Don't have any courage. That, that's where I struggle. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't see the opportunities. Maybe you're praying for opportunities and they're coming and you don't see them. Well, that's an issue too. But I, I, I feel that most of the time it's, no, I, I know what I should have said and I didn't say it because I was scared. I do this for a living and I was scared. The Apostle Paul did this for a living, by the way. He went around and preached. You know what he asked for? Pray for me that I might have boldness to say the things that I ought to say. Everybody struggles with boldness. You know, you know what the other thing that, that we should pray? We should pray, God, I am so thankful that you saved me by your work. I'm so thankful that I get a chance to see brothers and sisters saved, and this is because of you. Thank you. I think that's what we should do off of a text like this. I'm sure there's other things that you might say, well, we need to do this, and I'm sure you're probably right. But I think for us, it's more important that we pray and we're walking by the power of the Spirit and we take advantage of those opportunities when they're given to us. And uh, I pray for you that the Lord will make you bold like a lion, strong, like, like a strong person, courageous, passionately in love with Jesus, so impassionately in love with Jesus that you talk about him more than you talk about anything else. And I pray for us that we will become a church that will be known for our stance and love for Jesus more than any other thing. That's what we're about.
and, and I pray that we will take, take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us to share the gospel. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. We thank you that you've saved us. We thank you so much that you have worked in our lives, that you've caused this rebirth to happen. And Father, we pray for us as a church. Uh, We pray that you would cause us to be bold, spirit-filled, Christ-like believers. And that that you would... Help us in the midst of the opportunities that we're given. I pray, Father, that we would be passionate about your son, Jesus, and that the thing that we talk about the most is your son. Uh, Father, we ask for your help. We We ask for your guidance. We ask for discernment. We ask for wisdom. But we just also ask that you would work on our hearts. We know, as the promise says, you who began a good work is faithful to complete it, in us until we see Jesus, and we're so very thankful that you are working on us and you are putting up with us. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen.